This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com and on uh, iTunes and everywhere else you can find podcasts. We are also now a YouTube channel. So not only can you listen to us, but you can see us and our guests. Uh, and uh, you can find that by going to YouTube and just typing in Spirit Matters Talk. And in both cases, we would greatly appreciate it if you would subscribe. It's free. We have about 300 shows in our archives. And uh, we also uh, appreciate those people that have contributed to help keep us on the air. And if anybody wants to contribute and help uh, that, uh, us continue, just go to spiritmatterstalk.com and uh, uh, the information is there. Our guest today, Mr. Neil Allen, he has led a, a very interesting, remarkable life in many ways that I think uh, I can and I think a lot of our viewers can uh, relate to. They've probably had similar experiences, uh, especially if they've gone on any spiritual path. And uh, his, uh, uh, he is an author and his late, latest book, Shapes of Truth, now available. And we'll be discussing that uh, a bit today. So thank you so very much, Neil, for coming on. Uh, Neil, in Marin County right now, I'm in Iowa and Phil is in Los Angeles. So we're spread out, but Zoom brings us together. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Neil, uh, Dennis alluded to your having an interesting life. That's a good segue. We always like our guests to uh, tell our listeners something about their uh, spiritual journey. So tell us uh, in the short form of uh, your, your, how you came to the spiritual path you're on or paths that you've tread and uh, what led you to this new book. Hi, yeah. Um, unlike a lot of people, I didn't have much of a spiritual interest or yearning for most of my life. And so I grew up and I happened to grow up in an um, intellectually oriented family and a knowledge-based um, uh, universe. And I was perfectly content and happy within that. And I liked being rational. Uh, I studied rational things. I became a newspaperman, which is finding truth in the social world and trying to find rationality in the social world. And I, uh, uh, grew a family and wanted to make a little more money, went into the corporate world, was perfectly happy in the corporate world and enjoyed watching Darwin at work and things make, make <laughs> sense. The world, the world made sense to me. And uh, I got tricked into uh, spiritual interests by a, a therapist. I was coming out of a failed marriage and I thought I was sitting with an everyday a uh, post-Freudian therapist who had studied directly with Fritz Perls and with uh, Carl Rogers and had some chops. And all of a sudden, it emerged that he had also spent a lot of time with uh, the Rajneesh, the guy who became Osho, and also with uh, in a mystery school called uh, Diamond Heart with a guy named A.H. Almas. Uh, and and he started to take me places fundamentally to, to, to remove identities right? um, uh, that were quite unexpected for me. 
um, instead of trying to fix me, he was far more interested in finding me and helping me find myself in my original self. And in the midst of it, Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, came out. And uh, I think of that as having been the, as if I went through the Four Noble Truths. That was the first noble truth, was um, all life is suffering. And that's what that book told me. And until I read A New Earth, I hadn't really recognized that I was suffering. I'd, I'd been kind of oblivious to it. I'd been a fairly happy person as far as I knew. And, and I thought that I suffered emotional suffering like anybody else. And it was just kind of a thing you did and you fixed it through therapy or through friends or whatever. And I was amazed to discover, no, I was torturing myself all day long and not even aware of it. And then um, I think Bob was, my, my therapist, Bob Birnbaum was the second noble truth, was kind of explaining to me about letting me know about identities and how sufferings were tied to attachments. Um, and, then I, and then I just happened, a friend took me to a sitting and I'd never been to a sitting. I'd never, well, maybe once. I think I had sat with Allen Ginsberg and Elm for a while when I was a teenager. But other than that, I had never meditated or anything. And I'm sitting in a room and in the front of the room was the modern master, Adya Shanti. And, uh, Adya, just as all these guys do, took us into a meditation before he started his talk. And so I'm sitting in the meditation and I close my eyes. I don't know, a lot of your uh, listeners probably can't remember this, but the first time you sit in a room full of strangers and close your eyes in silence is very weird and uncomfortable. <laughs> and to, to add to the discomfort, um, I had the sensation that Adyashanti had pulled my soul, which I, I thought was kind of dragon breath, gray matter, smoky matter into himself and returned it to me after kind of scanning it as if he was going person by person while we had our eyes closed and scanning our souls. And I'm sure Adyashanti doesn't do that. Uh, I have no idea whether he's capable of doing that, but I had the experience that that happened. And I had the experience that even though it was uh, uh, I would have categorized it as a superstitious or ridiculous experience. I had the experience that something miraculous had happened, something supernatural had happened, and that the only important thing about it was that it had happened, not that it had a particular meaning to me, that the gray matter meant, meant I had a dirty soul or something like that. It was, it was that it was a... Uh, an entry into a realm that was real that I had never explored. And so that, that's the third noble truth. There is a way, right? And, mm -hmm. and there was an opening into another world. Mm -hmm. And then I entered into, soon after that, I entered into H.I. Almas's uh, mystery school myself and, and uh, spent, all told, probably six or seven years, off and on for about 10 years, um, studying his various entryways into, into spirituality. And those took me into reading through a lot of Eastern classics and um, rereading Eastern classics and finding that the East, you know, kind of points the way a little bit stronger than the 
uh, a little bit more elaborately than say Plato does or any of the Western metaphysicists. Neil, if I could ask you during this period of time, <clears throat> were you were you in the corporate world? Were you working? Did you take time off? How did you? Uh, how was your uh, immediate life uh, affected by this? And I also wanted to get into your relationship with Bob Birnbaum because I think when he passed, it was quite uh, traumatic for you and led you to more exploration, especially exploration of uh, how one relates to death. But but uh, first, how, what were you doing during that period of time? Yeah, I was from, this was 2006, and I was in the corporate world until 2011. I would say over the course of those five years, my capacity for working in the corporate world declined. Um, I I, I don't know whether that was other circumstances because I was also kind of finding myself as a single person in the world um, more generally than just finding my spiritual self. And so uh, everything was a rediscovery to me. And I might have kind of used up my, my um, corporate uh, capacities. Um, I, I'll never know whether it was tied to doing the spiritual work or not, but it, it did decline. I lost my job uh, basically through inattention um, and uh, found myself really devoted to my spiritual work. So there was a bit of a descent in there, um, an ordinary descent as I was committed myself more and more to the ascent. And I moved into doing this and that, executive coaching, those sorts of things. A um, uh, little bit of, I've always, I always keep my hand in writing. That's kind of my default mastery. And so whether I was working in the corporate world or journalism, um, I found that I could express myself through writing better than other ways. So I, I, I think I, I, um, I saw more possibilities for myself than making a lot of money. Uh, Neil, let's get to your book. What gave rise to the the book that we're here to talk about? Shape of Shapes of Truth. Um, what tell us uh, what led to it and give us the thumbnail so we can dive into it a bit. Yeah, the thumbnails that are hidden inside your body are thirty five. Uh, body forms, I call them, they're sensations. Each has a separate color and they can appear as uh, uh, beautiful little objects like jewels or um, geometric shapes like spheres. Uh, and they're, but they're primarily identified by a sudden color appearing in your torso. And they seem to have a universal vocabulary so that they, uh, the red sphere in you is the same as the red sphere in me in terms of meaning. Each one associates with a, a particular emotional support that you may feel that you're missing or need. So a red sphere in the chest is uh, strength. I may feel that I'm deficient in some capacity. I can get a flush of a red sphere in my chest and I'm reminded that I'm born with all the capacity that I need or a platinum bar may appear in my spine and I'm reminded that I share in a universal will, a universal steadfastness. I can stand on my own because of my generalized support from all around me. Um, 
they uh, were discovered outside the five of them the Sufi knew about. Um, this guy, A.H. Almas, his real name is Hamid Ali, he writes as A.H. Almas, writes prolifically about uh, spiritual experiences. Um, he discovered 30 more of these and uh, discovered that you can use them by exploring them one by one to uncover uh, uh, your issues and to help you re resolve your emotional issues. So it's as if my emotional issues are a house with 35 rooms and I can go into a room and it's cluttered and I can work through the clutter of that room and knowing kind of that I have this inner support capacity that feels tangible to me can help me with removing the clutter. And I can move from room to room to room to room. So one room will be my mom issues. One room will be my God issues. One room will be my feeling of not having steadfastness. One room may be my uh, feeling of being unable to accept disappointment. And, and you can kind of move mechanically through the rooms. So it's a way to use uh, uh, psychodynamic work uh, to the uh, to clear away obstacles of the ego. Um, when I was studying in the Ridwan school, in his mystery school, the Diamond Heart School, um, because I came out of a Western uh, philosophy background and uh, had, had uh, been in, interested in Plato a lot as a, as a kid, uh, I noticed uh, these kind of resembled the Platonic ideals or the Platonic forms. And, and uh, I had left the, after I left the uh, mystery school, I emailed him and I said, look, you've written all these books, but I don't think people know that you have contributed to Western philosophy in this way of finding a concrete um, set of examples of the Platonic ideals and that the and that there might be uh, a usefulness in the history of philosophy for this to be exposed, you should write a book about this. And he wrote back and said, I, you know, it's a good idea. I, I have other books I want to write, but it sounds like you might be interested in this. If you want to write the book, I'll help you with it. And so I wrote the book as much as anything as a debt to uh, an important teacher to myself. And the first version of the, of the book was, a lot more intellectual and a lot more uh, erudite, uh, and uh, uh, less commercial. Less commercial. Two, <laughs> two, two different publishers who bought it uh, had second thoughts. Both of them had second thoughts about its commercial appeal, and and uh, while I bought it back each time, I did cave and I and I rewrote it, and but I actually made it a readable book. I think. And, but Neil, uh, Neil, let me ask you what. What what was your what what do you what did you want to accomplish with the book? What did you want to communicate most importantly to your audience, if if anything at all? Yeah, any specific thing at all? Yeah, in the end, by the time that I finished the final version of the book, I had worked with so many clients one on one that I realized that um, it wasn't important where this fit in with Western philosophy. It was important that this is a tool for respite from suffering. And I wanted people to be able to have access to this extraordinarily 
efficient way to move through the obstacles of the ego one by one by one by one. And to, and that for me, at least, I don't know for everybody by any means, but for me, that's all the work. I am, I'm not interested particularly in exploring different versions of bliss, uh, but a version of equanimity or bliss or whatever you want to call it will appear if I provide it with the opening by getting my defenses out of the way. And this is a particularly strong way of getting the defenses out of the way. There are other ways to get the defenses out of the way. What Hamid, what A.H. Almas has come up with is a very efficient kind of mechanical step-by-step way to get to move through the obstacles of the ego. And I thought that was important for the world to see, at least in From what I gather, I'm sorry, Neil. Yeah, go Uh, ahead. From what I gather uh, reading the material uh, online, uh, the the process or one of the processes uh, has the person uh, essentially uh, feel what's going on in the body and perceiving what you call body forms um, that have shape and color and meaning. Are these body forms, you, you say there are 35, are those sort of archetypal and one or more will show up at different times for different people, or are they body forms that exist within the body at all times? So both. Okay, so they exist there. So you, everybody has access to all 35, whether you will find a need to access any particular one will depend on your, um, your archetype. I mean, if you want to go, if you're using archetype as a, as a kind of Jungian term where I have, I can measure myself as being uh, concerned, highly concerned about these issues and less concerned about these issues. And I can define a personality by which issues are strongest that I'm most concerned about through an Enneagram or through a Myers-Briggs or something like that. Then yeah, these, these could, you could type yourself through these, but they are somehow inborn. You know, I think about Chomsky a lot when I, when I when I'm answering a question like this, because Chomsky came up with a universal grammar that we're all born with that we that is simply syntax. We have uh, um, we share the same syntax, and he knows that it's uh, uh, inborn, universal, and peculiar because it doesn't share all its attributes with Western logic. And so you would think that syntax and logic would go, would match one-to-one and they don't. And so from there, he can move to a proof that there's a universal grammar. What Chomsky always says at the end of his books about uh, grammar, about the universal grammar is that uh, all he's proved is that there's a universal syntax without he has, he has proved nothing about semantics. He can't find meaning in a syntax. Well, if I'm born with a universal vocabulary, a rudimentary vocabulary of 35 words of value, words that are all on the uh, 
right side of right and wrong, the good side of good and bad, uh, then maybe I have the beginning of a semantics being inborn. And maybe all of our arguments over uh, ethics being man-made and human restraints on our um, God-given ability to be anything good, bad, right, wrong, um, maybe this is an adjustment to that, that we're actually born rigged to the good, rigged to what's right. Um, and that if we remove our defenses, the social restraints that tell us that we're bad inside and we need to control it in order to live communally, then uh, a lot of things get turned upside down. But it does allow me to feel a resemblance to the external God internally. So if I'm, if I'm rigged to the good, if I find at that kind of Ramana Maharshi core self that can't add another word to I am, that there are these subtle little attitudinal words that I can add to it, like I am strong, I am peaceful, I am accepting, I am, right? I, I, can, I can adjust that I am in a way that feels natural to me that extends out into the world so that I can use my human reason within a context of um, absolutes. Um, I can participate in the world with free will, even though I am an absolute being. Right. Let, let me ask you this, uh, Neil, on a practical basis um, in, in the time we have. Uh, <clears throat> What is your spirit? Is there a particular spiritual practice that you are involved in or practices on a daily basis? Because a lot of what you're saying uh, involves a lot of intellectual analysis, it seems, and uh, or a lot of thinking. Uh, are there spiritual practices that you participate in where you let go of that and find that important in your understandings? Well, I never have to let go of that. But I have to be aware of the fact that the I use the, my intellect to describe what's essentially phenomenology, right? So the, the, mm. the, the core feeling of equanimity is identical to the core feeling of having a full belly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the feeling of dynamism and the discussion in my head of the dynamic of participation in the world has a core feeling of a kind of trippy, um, indeterminate movement of energy within and without my body, right? And so I'm, I'm, as I talk, my body is moving me and guiding me through uh, uh, participation in the world by informing me when I am being accurate and, and close to the truth and when I'm not by how amplified the phenomenology of the energy moving through my body is. So it's kind of like I participate in the world much more, even though I talk about it a lot, I participate in the world as much more a sensory being than anything else. So that I have, even though I've never done a Kundalini practice, that's my, if I had a path, now that where I wanted to support 
what happens as I move through the world, I'd probably choose a Kundalini path. To answer your, your question directly, I don't have a path. Neil, um, when I was reading uh, the process that you uh, outline <clears throat> online uh, of feeling for these uh, body forms, it reminded me of a process uh, developed by uh, uh, Eugene Gendlin back <clears throat> in the 50s, 60s, I think, called focusing, where you feel what's going on, the felt sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. it used to. Are you familiar with that? Is it similar to that? That's its first question. Yeah. And I've been and asked the, that before, and so I looked into it, and it's not. Actually, oh, it's not. Okay. This, this, this is much more me mechanically, symbolically um, designed. And the, the other question is um, it sounds like a very therapeutic process, this use of body forms. Um, where does it become a spiritual practice? Yeah, I don't see Where's the, the transition. Yeah. No, I understand. I, I don't, I don't, I think that every time you encounter yourself without a defensive reaction, if you're attentive to it, a little bit of light opens. So for me, a curtain starts to part. Um, and for a while, it was a literal curtain. I mean, I literally had a, a sense of wrinkled curtains parting and this other kind of weird light coming in and light coming in. And I think that um, the removal of a defensive posture will always, when successful, open up uh, a broader, more curious view of the world that allows in... Uh, uh, much more information and much more fascination. To me, in the end, you know, people all we're in a we're in a a, a culture where everybody talks about a value, uh, getting your values right in your life, having a purpose-driven life, and all of that sort of thing. And those all feel awkwardly moralistic to me. And and if I have a purpose, it's to be fascinated by the world. And that fascination is with my mind and with my body and with my heart um, moving in through the world. If I get out of my separateness and my defensiveness, I'm going to be fascinated by the world. And it is going to flow through me as a fascination. And I yeah, think I that all spiritual paths, when they don't get kind of locked up in a belief system or a moral moralistic system will take me to the, that exact kind of place. It'll be different for everybody, but that sort of place. I have a one uh, last question for you. And that is um, you write in your bio about your work and getting over your fear of death. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So you had mentioned that before. Yeah. When Bob Birnbaum died, I noticed, oh, six months or a year later, I was still feeling anguish. And there, there was just something wrong with the picture. Um, you know, I understand that everybody has a different way through grief and we allow for anguish to go on forever if, if, it, if it needs to go on forever. 
Um, that's not what I'm talking about. There was a, I just had a feeling there was something wrong with the picture as I found myself crying again over his, over his death. He, he had died in his 80s. He had, he had died happily. He had died well, all of those sorts of things. What was I doing missing him and missing him and missing him? And all he had been was a guy who had been in my life once a week for an hour, you know, for a few years. Um, and that bothered me. And I happened to, it's one of those synchronistic things where right then I was in a book club and the book club read a couple of uh, essays by Montaigne and Montaigne wrote this essay about um, death in which he said to get over the fear of death spend your time with it spend all the time you read about it in his day go to a battlefield look at the corpses watch mm. if you're lucky enough that somebody's dying around you spend some time with them and I took him seriously and I thought yeah that that made sense to me and so I joined hospice and meanwhile right around the same time both my dad and my dog started to die like object lessons for me. And I just devoted the next year or two to mostly reading about spending time that I could around dying people. And, and uh, it works. If you do that, uh, death becomes so visible and so real and so delightful. Um, you know, you talk to people who work in hospice as volunteers or as, or as uh, nurses or social workers, they will tell you that almost to a person that this is selfish work on their part, that, that there's n it never feels selfless because it's just so fun and so powerful to be around dying people, to watch people letting go and to watch the capacity for letting go and acceptance and surrender. And yeah, sure, there's terror and there, there are people who die poorly, as far as we can tell when we watch them dying and that sort of thing. But most of the time, most people are going through really rapid lessons and changes and, and it's awe-inspiring and it's, and it's and it's ordinary at the same time and it feels very comfortable to watch it and to be with it and and it works osmotically i feel more comfortable about death great, great. at your own death you mean yeah my own death yeah yeah have you experienced I, you know, go ahead you know people talk about spend the uh next year you know the uh, Stephen Levine thinks spend the next year as if you're uh, you only have a year to live, right? And um, what would it feel like if you died in ten minutes or if you died in a year or whatever? I look at it. What would it feel like if I died ten minutes ago? <laughs> and, and it's it just clears everything away. Oh, I get to start over. I get to I get to start from scratch, and I have all this practical memory to use so that I it's life is easier as you get older. But, but, that, old but that assumes, but, but, but that assumes a certain belief system, like you do continue at all. Do you think that's also important uh, in, in facing death that uh, it seems that people that have a belief in an afterlife or a continuation of life, it, it's uh, uh, a lot easier to deal with than somebody that thinks, okay, the lights are out now it's over. I, you know, 
what do I know? I only know where <laughs> I live right now. I mean, I'm, I am, uh, I, I'm strangely uninterested in what happens after I die. I've, I've, I've always been strangely uninterested. I think that's, I think I, I benefit from having been an atheist Absolutely. for 50 years. Right. And, and before I, before I discovered yeah. a wider world. Um, and I, I just don't care. I mean, how can I care about it? That's not my job. My job's to care about right now, you know, if I have a job. <laughs> and I'm curious, if, you know, we're all at the age and fast approaching the time where we uh, might have to confront our own uh, deaths and we're losing people. I've lost people close to me uh, by, you know, increasing numbers in, in, in recent years. And uh, when people ask me if I'm afraid of death, I always say no, because I'm not. I just don't want to suffer a whole lot. Or as, as Woody Allen said, he's not afraid of death. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. And <laughs> but I, 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 I'm, uh, I'm having more trouble uh, dealing with the loss of others that I care about than you know, the, the possibility of my own death, although um, I don't know how I'll react when I'm on my deathbed. Um, has, has it changed? Has your experience working in hospice and uh, consciously looking at death, has it changed? Have you, have you lost people close to you since then? And is it different because of what you, what you went through? Very different. Um, and one thing that I, I've noticed is that um, the culture emphasizes anguish as the meaning of grief. And uh, we tend to conflate anguish and grief. I've noticed that um, most of my tears from the loss of people around me or animals around me, most of my tears are gratitude and it's it's an interesting thing that of in the 30 in the set of 35 shapes um that i write about these uh universal divine characteristics of support that we carry with us only one uh uh looks at the past right 34 of them are present and deal with things that are happening in the present and occur in the present about things only one really adjusts to the past, and that's gratitude, right? So gratitude is a divine uh, presence inside me. And the more I looked at that, the more I started to wonder whether grief is intended to um, resolve into gratitude, that there will be a, that, there, that anguish and objective sorrow are the beginning of the period of loss after, after someone dear to, to, to me dies. But eventually that will resolve into gratitude. And I wonder why would that be, right? I could think of intellectual reasons why it would be that 
you know, everything here is an influence on me and it's wonderful to take the negative and the positive influences and remove the words negative and positive from them and see that the negative ones probably taught me more and brought me more and the so-called positive ones were probably boring. And, and all of that, I can look at it fairly, you know, I can look at it through Eastern texts, that kind of way, or I can look at it that most of what that person brought to me that created this bond that I have with them is long gone anyway. I, I got most of what, I, what, I, what influenced me out of that person the first year I met them, if it knew them or whatever. And then I was just as kind of repeating those lessons, right? Why am I hanging on to old lessons by hanging on as if that person uh, is needed for me now. And it becomes a broader question of um, why am I missing someone when their influence has already done all its noble and glorious things to influence me, that, to, to make me who I am now? I, you know, I don't know. That's a hard question to, mm -hmm. to, to answer. It's a, it's a question that I find helpful to ask myself. Right. Very, very honestly put. Uh, Neil, thank you so much, Phil. Any other questions? No, uh, let's remind our viewers and listeners about the uh, title of Neil's book, The Shapes of Truth. Available. Oh, you're going to hold it up? Hold up, it up. I, was. Have all this I was. Posted on our uh, site. <laughs> Show and tell. I've got all one. Right. <laughs> there you go. Shapes of Truth by Neil Al. Neil N E A L. Well, we'll have all that up on the site. And, and you can always YouTube. contact us directly, but we'll have all that posted up. Okay. Neil, thank you so much for your time. Very fascinating material. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Very enjoyable all to right. be able to talk about this stuff. Yes, I'm sure it is. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you again. Take care.